podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Michael Doherty. I'm one of the co-editors of Contemporaries. Today's episode is a conversation responding to our recent cluster, The HALU Project. My co-editor, Francisco Robles, sat down to discuss the cluster with its editor, Yin Yuan, and three of her contributors to the cluster, Rita Rayleigh, Unjin Che, and Andrea Acosta. I hope you enjoy the discussion. I'm Francisco Robles. I'm one of the co-editors of Post 45, and I'm here in South Bend, Indiana, at the University of Notre Dame. Hello, I'm Yin Yuan, um, and I am in Moraga, California, and I teach at St. Mary's College of California. Hi, my name is Rita Rayleigh. I work at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I'm here to talk about my collaborative research with Unjin Che on the topic of streaming or OTT media, and our contribution to this cluster is called K-Streams. Hi, I am Unjin Che, a lecturer at Seogang University, South Korea. My main research area is Korean cinema and popular culture. Uh, recently, I am researching the division films, which are movies about the tensions between North and South Korea. I also currently research with Professor Rita Reilly, working on Hallyu, especially on K-dramas and their related content. Hi, um, I'm Andrea. I am a PhD candidate in English at UCLA right now. Um, and I'm one of the contributors. My contribution is the bots and binaries essay. Thank you all. So one of the things that stood out to me as one of the editors, having read through all the pieces, is that there's a sort of general agreement, but still a little bit of variation in terms of historicizing Hollywood. How many waves are there? Uh, when does this start? What historical or political contexts give rise to Hallyu? So if you all could talk about your own perspectives on this and where you take this in your pieces. Yeah, I can get it started. And for me, I think the most interesting thing about Hallyu, which translates into the Korean wave, is in how the term came about, um, which I talk a little bit about in the introduction to the cluster. <clears throat> Um, which is that it is a Chinese term coined by a ta the Taiwanese media um, to refer initially to the kind of impact of very cheaply exported Korean goods on local um, raw material industries in Taiwan. Um, and, and it was only a year after that the term became evolved to refer to Korean cultural industries and their impact on um, Taiwanese um, cultural content. Um, and the term actually means in Chinese, in Mandarin, it means um, like it, it's, it's a pun on a cold current, sort of uh, conjuring up a sense of assault. Um, and so to me, I think Hallyu is right from the beginning, very ambiguous in the way it's interpreted because it is not so much just a definition of Korean cultural content, but it's very much about the reception of Korean cultural content in overseas contexts and very much tied up with the financial crisis, which was the reason for um, the initial kind of sense of, oh, the Korean exports are going to be cheap and that's going to affect our domestic economy. So I think that the origins of the term is interesting, but of course it then goes on into multiple phases um, that it, Hallyu 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, you know, if um, Rita and Andy want to talk a little bit about that, because I think your sense of it as being post Hallyu directly comes from that evil um, evolution of the fate of Hallyu as a phase. 
Sure. So our research draws on industry documents that Unjin has translated for us. The consensus within the industry is that we're now within this third phase, which is marked by the explosion of streaming services. And particular to this cluster, I think, of course, the expansion of Netflix into global markets in 2016 is the is the is the marker. Um, what we've decided or what we're you know working through is the idea that Hallyu is perhaps now not an expansive enough category to account for all that is happening with respect to production, circulation, and reception. And, you know, right now the actors, actants are so entangled, so many and so various that to think in terms of one directional um, flows or um, investments, particularly government investments, again, not sufficient enough. So our play on the post there is, of course, not meant to suggest that how you is over by any means. We're rather thinking in terms of a kind of afterlife of how you. And in our view, the, the in fact, internal language of the creative ecosystem is probably better. Like at this point, in order to think about, for instance, webtoons, you really do need to think in terms of a creative ecosystem rather than how you. But Unjin has a really interesting perspective on how you 4.0, as long as we're periodizing. So maybe Unjin, you weigh in here. Yeah, so um, a few days ago, I listened to a Korean podcast about the Japanese economy in general, when one of the speakers suggested that Japan was in the middle of Hallyu 4.0, beginning in 2019 with the K-drama Crash Landing on You. I was very interested in this comment as Hallyu 1.0 in Japan began with the K-drama Winter Sonata in 2003, which was exclusively viewed by middle-aged women. In other words, before Crash Landing on You was popular, mothers and children watched K-drama at home without a home's father. During Hallyu 2.0 and 3.0, a different generation of Japanese people, namely the younger generation, embraced Korean culture through the explosion in popularity of K-pop. The most recent demographic to join Hallyu has been middle-aged men who are now watching K-dramas in greater numbers and helping to form Hallyu 4.0 in Japan. Um, I could also speak to... Um just something that actually stood out to me about um, one of the essays um, in the cluster, because I'm coming at this primarily, um, where my research deals with the K-pop side of things. Um, and I know uh, Michelle Cho in her essay um, spoke to the sort of platform streaming angle um, that Rita, you were bringing up, um, but also just the way that it's shifted in terms of marketing and in terms of focus at this point to quote unquote the West, right? Um, and the ways um, that that has shifted sort of the dynamics of Hallyu, especially in the last five years or so. Um, and that marking a kind of new periodization, but also one that really complicates, right? Like the global rhetoric um, that gets attached to it um, often, and not to say that there isn't interesting things happening in other areas, um, but in terms of like marketing focus, right? Or like production focus or or like even just like world tours <laughs> of of like k-pop groups right like that's definitely since like bts or blackpink's success in the u.s specifically has has seen i think a marked shift in that direction which is like 
something that I think will have repercussions that are still um, playing out. You know, that's one of the things that really did stand out when I was reading the pieces is that there's both an a, a attention to the local, but also to the global in a way that's truly fascinating. So what is uh, cultural export? How do we define it? But also, what does it mean that something is so deeply attached to local uh, codes, uh, especially semiotic codes? And I thought this was really fascinating. Um, the origin of this cluster was also Squid Game by itself. And then uh, Michael Doherty, uh, the co- one of my co-editors at Post45, asked, well, what would it be like if this were maybe a broader uh, approach to Hallyu, not just Squid Game, which it turns out it's not an ephemeral at all. It's actually been expansive and expanding. And as some of the contributors have noted, there are reaction videos. There are various ways that uh, Squid Game has been entering into... Culture through parody, through satire, through transcultural appropriation. And so it turns out that it's not an ephemeral thing. There is likely going to be a second season. So if you could talk, Ian, a little bit and and others as well about Squid Game and its immense popularity and how that is a way to talk about Hollywood, but also maybe not enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think Squid Game is so interesting because I remember when it, you know, suddenly rose in the charts and became the top the charts in, I think, all of the countries that Netflix was streaming in. There was this sort of collective sense of wonder and bewilderment that a non-English language title was doing so well in um, so many different diverse regions um, that were thought to have very different tastes from each other. Like the tastes don't typically travel well. um, and, and Squid Game seemed to have broken through those boundaries. And at the same time, as a longtime K-drama viewer, I remember just being in my little fan communities and everybody was arguing about Squid Game, saying like, this is a K-drama, or no, this is not a K-drama, and this is representing K-dramas poorly um, on the global stage. And so I think whatever... And it's interesting that it it then is is not ephemeral and has shaped popular discourse so widely and broadly. I think it's just a very interesting entry point. It it marks that phase, I think, that Andrea was talking about when um, suddenly there's the North American markets, especially um, typically thought of as sort of hard to conquer um, for for Korean uh, popular content with Squid Game and then Parasite the year before. I think the fact that those two things came so closely together was also a huge factor that suddenly the, the, the discourse made Squid Game a huge thing that, that everybody is talking about, Korean um, cultural content. And it is, it is interesting because I think in, um, in South Korea, um, Squid Game wasn't received very well at all um, at first, and people didn't feel like it represented the typical kind of K-drama um, that was being viewed. So I, I just think that the show is so interesting for opening those kinds of discourses and, um, and kind of sparking this conversation about can we define what, what is a K-drama and what, is, what counts as Korean and what doesn't count as Korean and what is the relationship between independent Korean um, cultural producers and Netflix um, as a kind of um, hegemonic institution that does to a certain extent advance a kind of, you know, um, platform imperialism is one of the terms that um, um, a scholar has used. Uh, and, and, and the sort of relationship, can Netflix and Korean cultural content coexist? Um, 
and and who who is writing what. I think is a really interesting question that Squid Game has brought up for for me. So I'm in the very bad habit of watching these Netflix originals the right when they come out or the weekend of and. The night that it dropped, I watched the whole thing, and I just could feel it in my bones that it was going to work. I just, in the way that you kind of have a sense, right? There's a Venn diagram, as Yin says, um, that you could draw that would have fans of K-drama and fans of Squid Game, and it's, you know, a sliver in between, and that sliver grows as the um, as the reception or the circulation of Squid Game grows and the the buzz around it. But it's true, it's not like in so many ways. It's very filmic. I mean, this point has been made over and over again. Um, but you really start to see at this moment, but I think it happens before this, but it, it the, the global audiences start to take notice of this. Um, how much drama then becomes cinematic to the point that you could start arguing that we're in this post-film moment, that drama is, you know, if you wanted to think in terms of genres, drama is now the, 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 the dominant genre. Um, but I, I'm going to like stop myself from being too effusive um, and maybe just Unjin make the point about the reception in Korea, which is just confirming what Yin made, Yin's point earlier. Yeah, so I think I can talk about Korean's perspective on Hallyu and Squid Game. So um, Koreans living in Korea have been slow to feel just how huge the Korean culture wave is outside of Korea. So many Koreans think that Hallyu seems to be an ironic phenomenon in which two opposite positions appear at the same time. So this is the strange paradox of Hallyu. So Koreans are very proud of their cultural experts, but at the same time, Koreans don't seem to appreciate the successful content as much as foreigners praise it abroad. And they are also curious about why these specific bands and TV shows are so popular instead of other equally good Korean shows and musicians. So when we learned that Squid Game is very popular overseas, Koreans around me, including myself, began watching the drama with renewed interest to find out what appealed to overseas audiences. This was a very interesting reversal of Korean media content influencing Korean culture. And we all said, this drama is amazing. There are many elements that foreigners will like. However, there are many other dramas like Squid Game in Korea. Yeah, that actually makes me think of, I think it was Benjamin Han's um, contribution of this sort of tension between, I think, uh, what he called cultural specificity versus cultural othering. And like the way that this sort of popularity doesn't so much index like... Um, like an accurate reflection of some sort of essential Koreanness or like some sort of like, like endorsement or like, or like, uh, even just a sense of representation, quote unquote, but rather like points more to like exoticizing, um, certain things, um, or just like, uh, the other being packaged in a way that is like, ooh, fascinating, right? To Western audiences. Um, and the sense that like the viral popularity of Squid Game even though Squid Game is great, right? But it also points to like the influence or like the power that the West exercises over the sort of like reflexively back onto how you like designating what is popular. And like, it's not, it's not something that like necessarily like people in Korea would have chosen. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that that's a really important like tension. I find the really fascinating thing about um, the Korean creative ecosystem right now is that 
I am, I, an American viewer, I am the audience and yet I'm not. Like in, in so many ways, I really think we are starting to see, this is a big statement, this is the Korean century. I mean, I, I think, sure, American culture is going to remain dominant in many areas or domains, but I think the game has shifted and paradigms are shifting. And, and I don't think we are presumed, we, here we are in California, we are, I don't think we are presumed to be the only audiences. That's what I think is the power of it. And I would say that's the case for Squid Game too. Certainly North American reception it was explosive, but so was it in Europe. So was it in South America. So was it in you know, other parts of the world. Um, and I, I think there's an, an interesting realignment that's happening that's geohistorical and cultural and media technological all at once. Yeah, I actually want to add on simultaneously, like around the pandemic, there was also a shift um, toward Chinese uh, popular media as well. So like the success of Modazusha or The Untamed on Netflix, like sort of coincided in some ways, like temporally. I just I just thought that that also like propped up this idea of paradigm shift because these audiences are are sort of flocking to different media objects. Yeah, it certainly puts a lot of pressure on what we assume to be the Anglosphere or the Anglophone uh, world of cultural production. Uh, you could even sort of track a realignment according to drama with Turkish, Mexican, and Korean dramas being some of the most popular cultural exports imaginable. Billions of people are watching these, billions of people are watching these dubbed in different languages. And there's actually a way that these are talking to each other and not to American soap operas. Uh, they're not talking to American soap operas, but they're talking within each other in the sort of realigned, uh, I don't know, novella sphere. I, I don't know mm. how to even put it, mm -hmm. but there's an entirely different thing happening. Uh, there's a different conversation and to have access to it, you need to have access to a different language. Uh, so there's mm -hmm. even this other question of, well, the access to these to many Korean dramas is through Spanish. Uh, so you've mm -hmm. got to watch Univision or Telemundo or something else. Uh, so it's really interesting, to your point, Andreas, to see this realignment mm -hmm. happening in really, actually, truly fascinating ways. To add to that would just be all of the adaptations, right? So Call My Agent gets a Turkish version, going to get a Korean version. So we're not even in that moment of Miss Granny, let's say, exploding into six markets in East Asia. Now the circulatory processes or structures are so complex that it, it, it's really interesting to think about how these things are moving around in different forms it, with local versions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so following up on that point then uh, that you just made, Rita, and I was thinking about this a little bit more because there is a tendency in some of the pieces, and this is one of the internal cluster tensions that I really like to see, is there an allegorical reading according to the sort of 97-98 IMF crisis that can map Hollywood and its interests in terms of theme or subject or not? Um, and I don't want to find a true answer for this, right? It's not a sort of binaristic yes or no. But on the other hand, this question of circulation, of global circulation, of new circuits, of new intimacies or translations and transmedial adaptations is fascinating to me because it does and does not confirm allegorical readings that, well, this is about crisis or this is about finance, because it seems like that's true, but also not true. Uh, like all good allegory, I suppose, it escapes its own formal grasp. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on whether there is a sort of allegorical historicization possible, whether that's overdetermining, and so on. Yeah, and, you know, Joseph Chan really makes this argument, and 
I wish he was here to to make his um to kind of make his stance because I know he feels this really strongly, and I think it's super interesting um, in his piece where he talks about how the fact that um, you know Squid Game is a sort of representation of the crisis conditions, but it is also part of the long wave of Korean um, cultural content being distributed globally and um, as kind of being situated originally in the in the financial crisis um, and how the it's part of the the government um, King on some government um, attempt to sort of uh, revamp a stagnating domestic economy through exporting its cultural content overseas uh, and he connects that to um, the boom in Japanese pop culture just earlier before the Halley wave I, I think that's that's really kind of the the, the affinities between how Japanese popular culture took off earlier um, in the 1980s um, and and then the wave of Hallyu and the, sim- the structural similarities between those as being both born in crisis conditions. And of course, Japanese pop culture had, uh, had a peak point and then it sort of um, receded. Um, and so I think that that's, that's part of the argument that mm, going back to, I think, Rita's earlier comment about how we're in the Korean century, I think that that perspective is that ultimately is still very much driven by American cultural hegemony and that um, as semi-peripheral cultural industries, Japan and Korea are kind of materially constrained and so more vulnerable to um, fickle consumer tastes. But I think your point, Francisco, about the fact that transmedial adaptations and circulations are kind of disrupting that um, alignment um, and that that sort of allegory is a really interesting point um, because I think I do personally think that social media and distribution platforms have completely changed the game in a way that wasn't the same for uh, Japan earlier on and so there's just so many more kind of unexpected um, collisions between cultures and in in the ways um, commodities are able to reach different peoples and the ways they're reinterpreted and then you have the freedom for um, uh, individual consumers to then produce, become producers through their own satires and parodies. And I think that that shifts the paradigm um, in, a, in a really interesting way. And also I think um, Squid Game is interesting because after Squid Game comes shows like Extraordinary Attorney Wu, which feels like, to me, more like a typical K-drama. And then you have reality shows now that's be- becoming really popular, Physical 100, which has been compared to Squid Game. Um, and so the Squid Game as like an ov- original point, if we do trace the sort of North American face of Hollywood back to Squid Game, it's interesting how it's sort of led to opportunities for a whole diversity of different kinds of Hollywood products that are um, being received differently and speaking to different consumers. And again, I think that's a game changer. I mean, one thing that I think is fascinating is the way that there is a, there is we're starting to see a self reflexivity about the um, the anchors or the touchstones. Um, I always use the first episode of Vincenzo as the example for this when Sung Jung Ki is playing this um, mafia figure back in Korea for the first time in years, and the limo driver scams him, but says to him very excitedly, oh, have you heard of BTS and Parasite? <laughs> and and indeed, like all the academic research now is BTS and Parasite and now Squid Game. And it's like, we cannot think beyond these these anchors. And I, I love the way that um, you're starting to see Korean content be 
ironic about this. <laughs> and, and it, I mean, the, they're in on the joke, right, that we can only hold on to these little touchstones. But to Francisco's earlier point, sorry to circle back, it is striking how much there's the Jamesonian, a Frederick Jameson thread that's running throughout the cluster, whereby we're still thinking in terms of national allegory, and we're meant to see these products as expressive and reflective of under, underlying economic conditions. No doubt that argument, you know, still holds, but I think, and, you know, we're making this point in a number of different ways, I think things are starting to shift. I think that's not big enough to account for what's happening. I think the phenomena, the situation, the condition now is so, again, complex. <laughs> and and the ecosystem is so imbricated, internal to itself and external to other forces and, and entities and institutions that one critical paradigm is not in and itself sufficient to account for, for what's happening. Um, in my opinion, Hallyu was a bigger factor in the election of South Korea's first liberal regime from 1998 to 2003 than it was in trying to find an alternative source of economic growth. So, um, unlike presidents of other conservative regimes before him, President Kim Dae-jung believed that more freedom should be given to the press and culture with a policy to uh, provide support but do not interfere. So, the IMF situation and the government cultural support policy coincided with the period of Hallyu 1.0, but Korean pop culture began to explode in the late uh, 1990s on its own, uh, particularly with the mass opening of multiplex theaters in 1998. Um, another important aspect of this is the screen quarter that was in place for much of early Korean filmmaking since uh, 1967. So the quarter required Korean cinema to uh, show Korean movies for at least 146 days of the year in an effort to protect Korean films from Hollywood. So when the IMF situation happened, the US uh, pressured Korea to drop this quarter and many Korean filmmakers protested. So um, we see this represented in the first episode of the drama 2521, which is set in 1998. Uh, Nahido, the main character, accidentally appears as protesting filmmakers pass by protect the screen quarter. However, once the screen quarter was gone, the crisis of Korean films did not come. Rather, Korean films have had more than 50% of domestic theater shares since the success of the film Shree. Yeah, I would just also, uh, to circle back to, to what Rita was saying about the the sort of analytical frameworks that we use. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was, was I think it was uh, Young Jun's essay about um, what she called mul uh, multiple squid games. <laughs> like there, these, the multiplicity of these, of these productions as they manifest in like social media spheres or like fan transformations or, or rearticulations sort of prevents this like single analytic, right, from being used. Because when we talk about Squid Game or when we talk about Korean cinema or we talk about dramas, K-pop, we're not only talking about the kind of national production of these media objects, but rather the 
the receptions and transformations of them as they sort of multiply in global contexts. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's very difficult to, to only or solely use, um, a kind of materialist, um, reading or a nationalist reading, um, of these things. And it's, it's also reminds me, I think, of, um, Lee Mandela's essay in the, in the, in the cluster, um, who speaks about, you know, it's possible to sort of use these economic lenses to think about how you, but at the same time, that lens sort of match or, or it lacks a sort of attention to like, I think he said sticky attachments. Um, and like feelings that drive the circulation. So I think the, the sort of dual attention, right, without discarding the usefulness of these sort of economic histories and, and, and lenses, I think it's like, it's half of the story. And I think that's what we're sort of, um, like tracing here. Yeah. I think it's actually a really, and so, um, one of the ways I'm seeing this conversation going to, which is fascinating is it's taking that conversation about, allegory saying, well, it's not quite right. It has to be diffused in certain ways. And also thinking about engagement. So several of the essays dealt with fan engagement, or as you mentioned, Andrea, right, uh, Lee's essay about sticky attachments or BTS fandom or Jihan's essays about performing uh, videos. And this, uh, and actually, Unjin and Rita, what you called the chum, right, effect. The sort of like ways in which there are certain markers of engagement that literally produce this feeling uh, of... It's just like solidity somehow. So it's a really fascinating way in which engagement itself, and Unjin, your, your point about also political feeling and attachment, mapping on in interesting ways. So thinking about how uh, this is a moment or when you're starting to see these various modes of engagement also becoming diffused in really intriguing ways, it's not very straightforward, which is, I think, again, one of the things that I really see this cluster putting forth that there are multiple sticky attachments, that there are multiple modes of engagement and entry into fandom, that, well, sometimes it's through visual arts, sometimes it's through K-pop fandom. Um, it really isn't standard or uniform. Yet, there's a way in which we talk about the wave as this right monolithic thing, yet look at all these different engagements, look at all these different modes of encounter, which I just find really fascinating as one of the things that the cluster is really, I think, putting forth this diversity of affect and of attachment. Yeah, and to add to that, I think I really like that self-reflexive, the focus on the self-reflexive um, in Rita and Jin's piece, because I, I think there is something so true about how the more it's a little, I, I think um, there's this sense of the more you do it, the more you want to. Um, and, and I think there's something really smart about the uh, sort of if we bring it back to the po the political side of things, the way that Korean government um, in the state is kind of really tapping into this and creating these jokes that allow fans to develop their cultivation, uh, cultivate their kind of interest and intensify their interest through feeling like they're insiders uh, because they now know all of the jokes and all of the tropes and are able to respond accordingly. Um, and, and also just a diversity of ways in which I think Kalu Studies is being funded now um, that allows for different kinds of productions of knowledges, like the, the kind of conversation we're having now and then the different kinds of fandom discourses that are going on um, in different communities, on, on different, in different forms of social media and how I think a lot of the, the investment of fans in this and the willingness that they are, uh, their willingness in using fan labor to produce more 
is, I think, part of part of what makes this really interesting to observe. Just on the point of Hallyu studies, one thing that Unjin and I are tracing is the emergence of Global Korea as an academic program. There are degree programs and initi- curricular initiatives and so forth, all under the name of Global Korea. In my own research, I'm interested in thinking about how Global Korea is, situ- is situated in relation to Global English, also an academic project. Um, and I, I think there are certain s- interesting similarities, um, but but <laughs> there is, of course, a, an important difference, which is that um, Global Korea doesn't have behind it that same sort of cultural imperialist project, but at the same time, it does because it is absolutely concerned with moving into the global south. I mean, this is like this is the thing: is create needs, then help, <laughs> create a desire for for our content, and then we're going to give it to you. Yeah, that's actually something I've been thinking about actually because I've been on the job market. Um, sorry, just academically, right? Like this is something that's been fascinating to me is just looking at like where Hollywood studies is happening departmentally or disciplinarily as well. Um, because I, I wonder, right, whether we're seeing a shift of whether, of the treatment of this, of this field as like ethnic studies or East Asian studies or Korean studies and versus moving into other sectors. So like digital media or like film and television. Um, yeah, which I think is another question of like, where does the academy place, um, this type of conversation? Um, but that might be a separate discussion, but yeah, it's something I've been thinking about. Although it might be a separate discussion, and that's actually really interesting, honestly, the way that you and Rita are both thinking about what what Global is doing here, and also the sort of institutional frameworks that are being used to study um, what is actually a very diffuse <laughs> cultural category that has a multitude of engagements, right? Is it fan studies? Is it star studies? Is it media? Who knows, right? But the point is that it's actually remarkably confusing and incredible uh, to think about how yeah, how can a discipline actually do this? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What does it? What would it mean to even discipline? Uh, to mm-hmm. use that mm-hmm. right play there. To what would it mean to discipline global Korea, and to study it according to the assumptions we've already built into our institutional frameworks and heuristics is actually really uh, perhaps part of the problem that Hall is pointing out. Uh, mm-hmm. If if it could point if it could point out um, that in fact you can't take a sort of unified approach. Uh, to what is an insistently non-unified uh, but still cohesive thing. I mean, my teaching just briefly, I, I actually reverse it. So rather than thinking global or Korea as the rubric and trying to understand what paradigms or critical vocabularies we need to think through it, I flipped it. So the class I'm going to teach in the spring is on the contemporary and the, the art in the premises. In order to understand the contemporary, you have to use this site because everything that's happening with, let's say, piratical practices and IP with new um, practices and processes of consumption or reception. Um, new logics of production, etc. Everything is happening in this particular site. Yeah, I absolutely agree because that's something. Uh, I'm a digital media scholar, and and the field of digital media has this like really obvious lack of attention to South Korean popular media because, in my opinion. I agree. It's like the paradigm, or like a paradigm shifting moment at the t- at like right now. That if you don't attend to it which a lot of people don't then you're missing like the the a lot of just contemporaryness about this culture yeah yeah i'd actually like to 
talk about BTS now because I think this is actually a really interesting segue into what a sound could be. Um, like, is there a sound that distinguishes uh, BTS? This has been one of the big debates, right? Um, what is a K-pop sound? What is the style of it? How can we define a genre? And this is, of course, a conversation that, you know, God, it's been around for thousands of years, right? What are, what are the contours of a genre? Uh, but on the other hand, BTS is taken, as you pointed out, Rita, as very representative in a very specific way. And so that raises another big question. Um, is it about the engagement that is producing the, the genre contours? Um, what could it possibly be? And so that I wanted to talk about BTS a bit just because several of the essays also mention engagement with BTS or even just what it means on an individual level, but also on a broader level about K-pop more broadly to engage with music, especially uh, the way in which there's that transmedia relationship between the music, but also the music video in a very particular way as well. Um, so yeah, your thoughts, everyone. Andrea's gonna have to start us off here, okay. <laughs> our resident BTS expert. <laughs> this is like a really big, like you just asked like a huge question. Um, in terms of sound, like that's, I'll start there. I think like it's difficult to sort of pin down because like the sound of K-pop, as as many have said, is like is a very hybrid sound. Like there's there's not even necessarily a quote unquote purely Korean production, right, of K-pop songs you have uh, like international songwriters producers um etc working on a single track you know for a certain group so it's i think very difficult to pin down any kind of like genre identifiable uh sound either at the production level or at the at the level of the result um and with bts in particular i actually would say i mean there's a sort of narrative that has um it's a, lot, it's a bit of a fandom narrative around them, which is um, one of the things that gets highlighted about them so often as like one of the reasons for their success um, is quote unquote authenticity or sincerity, right? So this idea that, and maybe this is sort of embeds a stereotype about K-pop in general, but like rather than being manufactured or like rather than these sort of like techno-orientalist um, sort of languages, like rather than being artificial, um, they are sincere or authentic, right? This sort of thing, um, which I think uh, like there is a certain like they self-author, right? Their their songs, they, they and many times produce their own music. So that was definitely a part of like the narrative. Um, but at the same time, I, maybe this is like specific to me, um, but I, uh, I think BTS does really well. And we were talking about like the global local tensions within Hallyu. Um, and specifically like quote unquote, the United States, right. Or the West. Um, in the beginning of their career, BTS actually made sort of like very explicit efforts to sort of learn about us culture but specifically black culture and black music hip-hop and like specifically west coast hip-hop um they did an entire reality tv show called american hustle life um which isn't widely watched and i don't know if i would necessarily recommend it um but it was very important i think to like the way that they were positioning themselves within a sort of global music scene of of having not only being um, Korean and sort of being authentically themselves and authentically Korean, but also having a very sincere engagement with 
black music and black culture and black production. And that was like part of their sort of like legitimacy, quote unquote, as rap and hip hop artists in particular. Right. And so that was something that was also incorporated into their sound. The BTS sound was both Korean and global. It was both Korean and specifically black American. Um, and that was like something that, that was quite, I mean, there was a hip hop trend in K-pop around that time too, but like they were the ones who sort of did a quote unquote boot camp, <laughs> right? And, like on hip hop in LA. Um, and that I thought was really important to like the beginnings, not only of a US based fandom, but like, a sound that was was legible and also respectful people sort of pointed out of like the type of sound that had been informing k-pop already like so this the sort of black hip-hop tradition um there was like an explicit attention to that in bts's music i don't know i just feel like that's a really important piece of the puzzle um or at least it was for me I mean, another piece of the puzzle, I think, um, is provided by my colleague, Soen Park, who has a great piece of writing on the production designer, particularly for the um, music videos. This person's trained in the history of aesthetics, etc. It just serves as an important reminder that we are talking about production values and virtuosic spectacles. I mean, the fire video, the mic drop videos, these things are amazing. The sheer amount of labor hours and, and, and conceptual, you know, thinking that goes into the design of these things. It's just, it's jaw dropping. You can see it. So it's the sound. Yes, but it's, it's the production itself. Um, I mean, who among us can resist? <laughs> yeah, to add to that, I think I've heard from a lot of friends who are fans about how buying the kind of special edition album is an event in itself. Um, and that different editions have different things in there. And you sort of have to buy multiples in order to get the thing that you want, right? Because it's not necessarily the same in every single album out there. And now I think that just speaks to our earlier point about how it's no longer one single thread, but the ways in which different things are coming together. I mean, they're on reality shows. And I think that's part of a, a huge aspect of this sense of sincerity that you get. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not, Andrea, when you're talking about that, it made me think about how one of the things that I always feel like K-dramas do very well is the way they're able to represent everyday life. And, and that's part of my research in terms of the focus on how, how, how everyday life is represented in these dramas. And I think that K-pop too is sort of, there is this ability to kind of have its fans think about everyday life and these celebrities as everyday personas. Um, that is much, that goes beyond just simply like the cultivation of authenticity. Like it's not that binary of, it's a representation of, of, of authenticity and therefore it is not authentic. It's, it's, there's, it's, I, I feel like there's a really interesting way in which K-pop celebrities are traversing and kind of blurring that line um, so that, and I think Lee talks about this in his piece too, that in a, in a sense, they are performing something that they're also kind of caught up in. And you, as fans, you sort of experience that as this, this sense of like, we, we engage with that and we feel like they're everyday people 
who are sincere. Um, and I, I think that's super interesting and kind of speaks to the way Hallyu is traversing different kind of uh, forms of media and how those things are coming together to create that sensation and effect. In a literal platformed way too, um, BTS was one of the first uh, K-pop groups to do such extensive behind the scene content. I mean, the, all, all the, a lot of the groups have behind the scenes content, but they were, they did these like daily, um, like they're called Bangtan bombs, which were just like little snippets of like, sometimes they weren't even, it seemed like they weren't even aware the camera was there. And sometimes it, it did seem like that. And like they were the first group to release so much of that on YouTube at the time. Um, and I think that was really important to like this quotidian daily, like connection that was forged between them and fans and like the way that that quote unquote, um, sort of like, like performance of authenticity was not only performance or it seemed like it wasn't only performance and it was something that was actually fans were, were connecting with, um, on a, yeah, on a daily level. I mean, just to go back to the the whole constructed apparatus of this, I mean, you have to admire the coordinated strategy of rolling out content while they're in the military, right? Yeah. Like you just reminded, <laughs> like there's <laughs> there's a there was an album disease. announcement like today. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> like, so you have both the the kind of voice, the sincere voice, but on the other hand, you cannot forget the the apparatus behind it. Uh, and I think I can add something. Um, my experience related to BTS as a Korean. So um, this might be surprising, but I wasn't a fan of BTS until I moved to America in 2018. Yeah. <laughs> However, when I went to the US, uh, their cultural influence was much greater than I thought. So I was overwhelmed by Hallyu abroad, even though I am Korean. So I lived at the chance to get tickets to the first show of their 2019 world tour in LA. Before the concert, I could only identify a few members of BTS. However, on May 4th, 2019, I became ARMY. So watching their performance, <laughs> I could fully understand why they, why they receive such praise. So now I'm the one who always explains to my acquaintances in Korea that BTS is much more popular and influential abroad than they typically imagine in Korea. There's this language of reimportation that I've heard um, from both scholars and fans alike of the way that BTS was not did not start dom domestically popular, but rather was reimported um, by their kind of Western popularity back into Korea. Um, so this sort of like counterflow, I think, is is really interesting. Um, also, yeah, 2018 feels like one of these turning points um, around the uh, just reminds me just like the periodization of Hallyu, right? Like 2017 and 2018 were BTS's first television appearances in the US. And I think that that was really uh, critical to sort of their breakthrough in the mainstream. And yeah, I, I, I think that is the time to get into them <laughs> if you're going to get into them at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm really fascinated by this uh, process of the reimportation because I think I'm a, I'm a literary studies scholar. So something very similar mm -hmm. happened with Elena Ferrante in Italy. Uh, her Neapolitan quartet, people were like, whatever, it's fine. And then translations came out and became a worldwide success. And suddenly people said, oh, wait a minute, let's reappraise this. And I've in fact heard that it, the books became much more popular after their translation into other languages. There's something that happened with the reimportation of the text that made it iconic 
within Italy that beforehand it was like, well, here's like a very competent writer who we like her other stuff better. Um, but something about that book, that quartet of books, just when it came back, when it circulated almost, it it received something else. I, it, there's something about transvaluation here. I'm not going to be able to connect the dots. But the question of BTS also uh, being having such global popularity that, as Unjin, you put it, is just surprising to people, actually. Like, they're this popular? My God. Um, they get billions of views, and they have more than a billion fans, I'm guessing, uh, around the world. Uh, there are how many people dancing in plazas and recording their videos <laughs> to clips um, of their videos? Like It's really kind of incredible. Um, one of the questions I had, and this may be the last question I have before we sort of just uh, move into where the chaos of recording takes us, is about Extraordinary Attorney Wu, because one of the things that you mentioned, uh, Yin, is that also this is a piece that is has gotten popular, but is also very different. And it's also so specifically locally oriented in terms of the, I'm going to use semiosis again, right? In terms of just even the ways that the genre works and the ways that the semiotic uh, semiotics operate. Um, this is not meant to be extroverted, uh, to use that language in the same way that something like squid game is. Um, it's, so what explains the popularity of Extraordinary Attorney Wu, or what's the appeal to it uh, for you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting case compared to Squid Game. In my, my sort of perspective on it is that the reception is almost inverse, that it, if um, Squid Game was sort of re-imported um, into Korea and then became popular because domestic audiences were like, oh, why, why is the whole world watching this? Um, Extraordinary Attorney Wu sort of has the opposite trajectory where it started as this show on like a, a recently rebranded channel that nobody even knew about um, in in South Korea called ENA. And then it really just took off um, and became really popular uh, with um, during the weekly broadcast. And then because it also was on Netflix, then people just start, started watching it. I, the, the dean of my school was telling me how she's never watched any Korean dramas before, but started watching the show. And it's just really interesting to me how, why this show was able to, you know, gain the popularity that it did. And, and I, I talk a little bit more about this in my piece, because it's still, a, it's still a puzzle to me. I think it's really interesting. I'm curious to hear what other people think. But I think for me, it comes down to how it's able to capture it. Going back to the Venn diagram that Rita was talking about with like the K-drama fans and then the, the people who like Squid Game and the, the sort of little sliver of, um, uh, of overlap, it, it feels like um, Extraordinary Attorney Wu has a lot of the same typical tropes that we associate with K-dramas. Like it's a very, it has a romance. The romance is very PG um, and it's, um, it has a very sentimental perspective on humanity. I think that drives a lot of K-dramas um, and like found family, community, um, and, and sort of it's invested in everyday life, uh, the way sort of South Koreans navigate structural kind of uh, pressures um, in, a, in a sort of focus on the minutia of, of that navigation. But on the other hand, I think it's the, for me, it's the, the, the digital effects that really signal as global aspirations. So even though it's, it's very, I know domestic audiences have said that it's like a very Korean drama. It's like a very Korean made drama. Um, at the same time, there is that sense of, 
we're going to use, you know, VFX as a way to um, really showcase the ways in which we have come, our, our industry is sort of technologically advanced now. And I think it harkens back to a lot of the um, sort of VFX effects in earlier films, in particular, like Bonjour's The Host. Um, and, and so it, it traverses that K, the drama and filmic line in a really interesting way. Um, and but the the whale too because it, it's the whale actually that um, that is digitally rendered on screen, right? But but the whale is also I think going back to the earlier point um, in that we were talking about Rita and Jin's piece about self reflexivity. There's this sense of self reflexivity because there's this fr- famous Korean saying that um, when um, when two whales fight, when whales battle, it's the shrimp's back that breaks. Um, and the shrimp being a clear reference to Korea because it's sort of capturing Korea's sense of precarity as this very small peninsula caught between, you know, the whales of China and the U.S. Um, and in fact, um, recently there was a K-drama, Reborn Rich, um, which is very self-reflexive about um, how Korea's kind of place in the sun as the Korean century kind of dawns on us because the, the protagonist travels back in time um, to the 1980s. And it's always making jokes like, oh, one day perhaps, you know, um, the Korean film industry will produce a film like Titanic. And then and in the 80s, right? And then other, the, the, the protagonist is traveling back in time. So he knows that Parasite has made it. Um, and others are just like fantasizing about this. And he's looking at them in awe, like, how did you predict the future? Um, but the, but the, the, one of the characters in the show is, uses this particular, this very saying, um, when battles, uh, when whales back battle, the shrimp's back breaks to talk about how Korea is the shrimp. And so I think it's very intentional that it's the whale, um, that is the, the VFX in Extraordinary Woo. Um, because it is saying that we're now, we're now the whale, right? Um, and not, not just a shrimp. And I know uh, BTS also has a song about the whale. Um, so I, I think that it, is, it, feels, it feels like such a domestic drama, but it has these global aspirations. And I wonder if that is what is sort of the, the kind of really cool synthesis between the two that is making audiences take notice, because I, I think it's a very interesting case. What I think Wu reminds us of, actually, is that for all of the coordination, you know, I spoke earlier about the sheer numbers of people who are involved in these productions, and you admire the the labor that goes into them. For all of this, it's still an industry and an ecosystem driven driven by the charismatic personality, you know, if not Sonia Jin or Hyun Bin. In this case, I think this drama is carried by the lead, um, Park Hoon Bin, like, she is luminous and it like she holds your attention and there's just a way in which, and of course she's lit in such a way that she's always shimmering. Um, it's just, it's, I mean, it really is, it's still a celebrity driven institution. I mean, this goes back to the BTS thing too. And the power of the behind the scenes is you get access to these singular characters <laughs> that are created for you and that allow you to connect onto them and then to to make them your own whether with merchandise or fan videos or other ways just commenting on a subreddit yeah one of the things i would sort of i i liked that you sort of said was the sort of domestic um uh sort of actor actor being like the show itself um at, with global aspirations because i think that that's a narrative that's so 
it invites so much sympathy and so much like resonance and it has the ability to sort of be transposed into anybody's life, right? Like the small, scrappy, sort of like underdog production or singer or person making it on a global stage. Like that was so critical to BTS's success narrative of like not being a member of the big three, uh, like entertainment companies in Korea, like coming from a more independent label, not being overly wealthy at the start. Like these, these narratives of like rags to riches, I think are, are, are critical to the ways that audiences sort of sympathize with and, and sort of form these bonds with, um, shows like Extraordinary Woo, but also with BTS. Um, and that sort of is maybe, you know, part of the appeal. Yeah, and actually, just going back to one of the pieces, I think it's Young A. Chung's uh, piece on Black and queer adaptations and parodies. So, uh, Yin, one of the things you said about the sort of sentimentality, these moments of sentiment, one of the moments from Extraordinary Attorney Wu that I saw picked up and commented on over and over again was when she tells her friend that her nickname is uh, Spring Sunshine. And it's just this moment of just like heartbreaking sentiment, like this really tough attorney finds out that her friend has just a sweet nickname for her. Why? Because, and you can just see her like crying a little bit and trying not to cry. It, and I saw it pick, getting picked up on so many different mm. media platforms, mm. especially because people said, this is the sort of soul that's here. This sort of, yes, it is sentimental. Yes. It's kitschy in sort of ways. It's campy, but it also is getting to something very deep, which is this earnestness. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things mm-hmm. that I really appreciated about a lot of the pieces in this cluster. It's working at both the self the self-realized meta-narratives, but also these moments of sentiment that maybe are participating in camp in terms of the genre, but they're also doing something else that just encourage engagement on a very earnest level that is often very sweet. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I find that personally, one of the things that K-dramas do so well that I haven't seen as much in other forms of um, media, cultural media with which I'm familiar, I'm thinking mostly about American TV, is this ability to kind of switch from just very broad comedy into like a moment of intense sentimentality and 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 sort of the abil- its ability to kind of mind uh, the heart within what seems really just naive and absurd and then kind of turn while laughing at itself at the same time. Um, I think it's just very expertly done and to me gets at the question of what it's like to live in a, in a kind of capitalistic world where we're both kind of post-theoretical and post-modern and laughing at ourselves. But I think there is this desire for connection and community in, the, in this particular moment. Um, and and K-drama seem to kind of capture that really nicely um, through a lot of, I think, te- technological um, and technical devices as well. And Steve Cho, um, a, a scholar of um, Korean film and television, has this piece where he talks about ha- uh, the effective interlude. And I think he, that's what he calls it. And he, he, he says that that's what defines K-dramas for him, where it's like in that moment of spring sunshine you know, that, that you were talking about is the, the way that sort of camera stops and focuses in with these, ma- these zoom-ins on facial expressions of the characters and the way music is used and their silence. And I, I think those, those moments kind of structure K-dramas um, in, in a very prevalent way and that co- contributes to its appeal. I mean, there's so much more to say, but, but, but one point to add is that 
part part of what's compelling for me about the contemporary moment is that the the field is so expanded, and we've made this point in a number of ways that even K drama itself, you know, functions as a descriptor, but it's not. It can't account for Squid Game on the one hand and Wu Young Wu on the other somehow. I mean, there are moments of overlap. Certainly, the scene in the snow at the end of Squid Game is just so powerfully melodramatic and drawing on you know, you know, histories of of these scenes. Um, but the genre, the generic field is now so intricate and interesting that. K-drama functions, you know, it's a, a, you can describe as a 70-minute or 80-minute production, but it can't really describe the content, which is, I think, a testament to the, I, the power of the industry now, maybe. This is a really expansive cluster. We've, in our conversation today, talked about every single piece, um, talked about fandom, talked about genre, talked about Squid Game, talked about BTS, uh, Extraordinary Attorney Wu, Allegory, IMF. Uh, my goodness, we've actually talked about everything. Uh, the specificities of South Korean politics and election cycles. Um, but final thoughts, especially in terms of working on this cluster. I think one of the things that I'm really happy about is that we still don't have one definition of Hallyu, um, which is just, for me, the sort of mark of great scholarship, is we raise more questions. Uh, and we've got a lot of great questions that are coming through the pieces and through our conversation today. Yeah, it's it's been such a pleasure working on this and sort of read, reading about the diversity of approaches to this question. And I mean, for me, I think that that's, it's exactly that, that the Hallyu and what now is really kind of a prefix K, um, K-drama, K-pop, you know, K-everything. Um, I think that the the value of it is in how resistant to definition it is, how the, the capaciousness, the porousness, the way it sort of constantly moves and transforms. And I think working on this cluster made me realize how much of a window it offers into kind of understanding the global as such and how to think about global cultural studies um, and sort of the, 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 the really interesting status that Hollywood holds going back to that earlier point about, you know, discipline, how do we discipline this and, and how does it unsettle preconceptions about what are area studies, what is global studies. Um, so I think it's a very exciting moment and I'm, I'm really also just curious to know where, where it's going to go and co the continued role that platforms like Netflix is going to play because every time I feel like, oh, this is where it's going. I mean, after Squid Game, then Money Heist came out, Money Heist Korea, talking about, you know, adaptations. And I was feeling like, oh, no, is this the direction it's going to go? Because honestly, I did not like that show. And I felt like it was just a copy and paste of the original. And and I thought, is that is that sort of the diluting influence that Netflix will have on Korean content? But then Extraordinary Attorney will happen. And then the recent kind of K-drama hit is... Um, Love to Hate You, which is a sort of 10-episode rom-com that's very interesting. Totally, I think it would take another like 15 minutes to talk about what that does for it. But I just love how it's evolving and changing. And, and really, we don't know what, what the future is. I mean, one thing just to add in here briefly is that we, of course, have to mention all the other streaming platforms, Vicky 
primary among them, but Aichi as well. I mean, that, that we are really talking about global circulation. So Netflix is a, is a major player for sure, and we know how much they've invested. Um, but in terms of you know, making the, the uh, products available, we have to look to all these other platforms as well. But and we didn't mention zombies just very briefly. Like, <laughs> I mean, was, we have to mention zombies, right? Like because I do think, and we want allegory, right? The K zombie is is allegorical for the psychoaffective attachments we have to media, and and that and that is really sort of sums up the picture of things. Yeah. You're totally right. We didn't talk about parasite zombies or trains. Uh, <laughs> we, we could do a whole other thing, right, about this. My goodness, yeah. <laughs> Um. Uh. I. I <laughs> really enjoyed our conversation conversation today, especially from the perspective of Korean. It is always happy to talk about Korean culture with other, I mean, foreigners. And actually, last year, uh, Rita and uh me had a chance to uh, interview the production designer of Squid Game. Um. And we realized that in the conversation with the production designer, how bold Korean creators were in realizing their cultural assets and ideas to make the best results, how much they focus on content instead of, of audiences. So that's, uh, that was very impressive, um, during, uh, the interview. So, um, even though we are talking about how Korean culture became global and we are talking about the consumption and distribution, but we have to focus on how Korean creators are serious to make uh, the best result, the best content. So that's what I want to say at the end of this conversation. Yeah, I, I feel like this has been a really great time. Um, I also want to sort of compliment the, the editing of this cluster just because I feel like I can teach it. <laughs> like, I feel like everything here is so useful, um, to address like these larger conversations. Um, I guess on the topic of, of K-pop, my final thought, um, I'm actually quite interested in like, um, looking kind of beyond BTS to the differently scaled, success of other groups um specifically in the u.s right now um but like i think it's interesting that we sort of speak about these sort of like giants right like sort of uh bts and blackpink and it kind of almost like elides the conversation um because people are like looking for the next big thing right and it's not so much that like, i'm like less interested in what the next big thing is and more on like what's concurrently happening alongside bts and blackpink and these sort of large like acts um because i think that that's like a site where like there's a lot of interesting stuff happening um just uh yeah like stray kids twice uh nct like th those are also very large groups but also like uh p1 harmony like there's just a lot of interesting things happening i think on the k-pop scene that unfortunately we don't have time to talk about today but um it is something i'm interested in like maybe turning towards that was Francisco Robles in conversation with Yin Yuan, Rita Rayleigh, Eunjin Che, and Andrea Acosta on the Hallyu Project, our latest cluster, which we recently published at post45.org slash contemporaries. You can read the whole thing there now. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. If you did, please don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that helps other people find the show. 
We're always on the lookout for pitches for new clusters, so if you have an idea for one, please do drop us a line at post45contemporaries at gmail.com. I've been Michael Doherty. Join us again soon for another episode of Pod 45.